scripture comes from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, 13 to 16, and 2 Peter 1, 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And 2 Peter 1, 3-10. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us, um, this is the same passage, more or less, that I preached on two weeks ago. We've been sitting in this passage. It's a big and complex passage. And um, we're in part five of our series called Most Deeply Human. And in some ways, I kind of feel like I'm giving you kind of the same sermon each week. And each week, I'm kind of adding a piece. And so I hope this is kind of like starting to build up in your mind the themes of, of, of these verses. And um, so today's message, uh, I've entitled something a little bit strange. I've entitled it, Mud Pie Identities Versus the Glorious Story. You're like, what is a mud pie identity? And uh, you'll, you'll find out really soon. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. Mud Pie Identities versus the Glorious Story. Now, part one. Mud Pie Identities and their overly small stories. That's part one. Mud Pie Identities and their overly small stories. That's what we wrestle with in our, in our, in our times, all right? Part two. The adventure of pursuing the glory of holiness through Jesus Right? The adventure of pursuing the glory of holiness through Jesus. And part three, oh, there's no part three. <laughs> all right? No part three. Just parts one and two today, all right? Okay, so there you go. All right? So don't, you got to just change it sometimes, okay? So um, let me, uh, you know, go over that portion. So there's kind of like three little chunks and 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 1, it really has a lot of overlapping content. Um, and, they, and he says it, you know, this is the Apostle Peter's letter. And what, some of the things he says, are, they're basically the same things, but he says them slightly differently. Now, I just want to cover, um, let me go through uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Let me reread this portion, okay? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So let me just say that again. His divine power, not your power, not your parents' power, not your money. God's power has granted to us all things, not some things, all things that pertain to life, the things that you really, really, really need. And godliness, okay? I'm not sure if, how many of you are really interested in godliness. I hope you are. It seems like an old religious type word. But in the Bible, 
Godliness is life. Life is godliness. It's really the same thing. Now, he goes on. How do you get this? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Called us to his own glory and excellence. Who is that? That's Jesus, right? Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. I said to you in the last couple of weeks, I actually don't like that translation, right? It's, it's not a bad translation, but um, it's not something that you could translate very well from Greek to English. The way I would say, it says something like the promises that are maximally great. Promises that, that are so great. I, I, the way I would put it is maximally magnificent promises. Um, I'll just say a little something about this. I, um, I just came back from my, my, my uncle's funeral in uh, Seattle. It was, um, I loved my uncle. And my uncle, this is my uncle-in-law. Um, you know, he's white American, grew up in Seattle, and married to my youngest aunt. And, um, and they weren't believers, neither my aunt or his, um, and, and, and her husband, my uncle. Uh, wonderful people, but they weren't believers. And he grew up in a Catholic family, and um, he clearly had some baggage from that. And um, he directed his wife and children that when they bury him, at first he didn't even want to be buried. He was like, just cremate me, throw my ashes out in the ocean. And somehow they were visiting a a cemetery. And um, I guess in recent periods, you know, he'd been very sickly. And he realized that the, the burial ceremony is for the living, he said, it's really more for the living than it is for the dead. So he said, okay, it's going to be good for you and for the family. Go ahead and do it. But he directed that it would be explicitly non-religious. There'd be no, it wouldn't be about God. Right? Very secular. And so my, two of my uncles come. You know, they believe in the Lord and their wives. And after the service is over, you know, after that we had, it, was a, it was a very secular service. A lot of beautiful words said, a lot of great memories of my uncle. And I learned a lot of things about him that I did not know, right? It's a pretty wonderful things, quite frankly. And um, so it was a good celebration of his life. And then um, the only piece of Jesus was in it was, is my aunt said that I could pray. You know, so it's like, well, you're like the pastor in the family. <laughs> you could pray. And um, so I, I got to say this prayer. And, and of course, she knows it's, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus and insert very gently some gospel content in there. And thankfully, they, they liked it enough that, um, you know, the, the, the secular woman who was the officiant, she asked me to also say the prayer at the burial portion too. And, um, and my cousins actually, who never went to church, don't believe in, in Jesus. I, I think my older, the older of the two basically told me he's an atheist. And, um, but they, they really liked the prayer. Thank, I'm really grateful for that. And afterwards, I was talking to one of my uncles. And he was, and he was commenting, because mostly when he goes to funerals, he's in his like 60s now. And when you get to your 60s, you go to funerals. So when you're younger, you go to, you go to weddings. When you get older, you go to funerals. And so he's been to quite a, a number of funerals. Most of the funerals he goes to, are people he knows that are Christian or they come from a Christian family. And so he regularly hears the Bible passages and promises of the gospel. But he was saying to me, you know, it's really, really good. We got to hear about, you know, his name is Mark, Mark's life. And it was really good for us to remember and celebrate um, because he really was a good father, good husband, a wonderful uncle in so many ways. And, but then my uncle pointed this out. He said, but there were no promises. That's the way he put it. There are no promises. It's like he lived a really great life, and now we are sad because he's gone. And let's, the good parts of him, let it try to stay on in us and let us remember, but there's no promise beyond that. I just want to just, this is just one place one tremendously important place where do you live inside of not just some promises, but maximally magnificent promises. 
um, goes on. So that by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises. So that by through, through them, so that through the promises, that's what it's saying. So that through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So let's just stop for a moment. I want to just say this. Some of you already know, you, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus sometime in the past. Last year or five years ago or 20 years ago, you gave your life to Jesus. You were baptized. It's very clear to you. I belong to Jesus. When we sing these songs, I belong to you, you're like, that's true. Some days it's really meaningful to you. Some days you're like, yeah, it's more of like a fact. Um, you don't always feel it, but it's true. But I want to ask you this question. Do you, are you pursuing what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature? Do you participate? Your life is about partaking. Partaking, you understand what partaking means? It's a partaking, the, the easiest analogy is like when you eat. You know, you go to a table and, um, you know, my, my sister-in-law is visiting out of town, so we're getting some extra good meals, right? Uh, and, you know, so my wife made this, you know, this really great meal last night. It's kind of like make your own kind of like Korean sushi kind of thing, which is one of my favorite. And you have to choose to eat that. You have to partake in that. You have to come to the table and then you have to take it into yourself and you have to eat it. And so, you know, you can be a member of our family and you could decide, I don't feel like eating or I'm not going to show up or I'm only going to eat or nibble around some of it. But will you eat the glory of the food itself? That's what it's saying. What is offered to you is you are of a new kind of humanity. And in the previous weeks, I've said that who you are, if you want to be most deeply human, there's really only three choices. You can either be like animal. That's kind of the secular way. We're like very cognitively over-endowed. <laughs> you know, for some reason, we need this weird thing called meaning. Okay? Whereas it doesn't look like fish need it, but we need it. And then the second one's even worse. It's, it's more like devil. We think we know what is absolutely right and we could crush and maybe even murder those people that we just hate and, dis and destroy them. That's, that's a way that a lot of people have chosen to be human in history and it's going on today. But the third way is to be like God. And here it is. Will you be like God? And you know what? There's a choice in it. Do you believe in this? It's not just some dead fact like a doctrine, you're made in the image of God, but will you activate that? Will you go into that? And here is what the passage says. Will you partake in the divinity? Will you partake and bring it into yourself? And how does it, and it tells you how to do it. It tells you that through the, magnific the maximally magnificent promises, that's how you partake in the divine nature. That's the pathway to the truest humanity. Let me put it this way. This is the pathway for you to be the best version of you. This is the pathway for you to find your deepest identity. You lay this foundation down and then you wake up each day with, you live inside of the promise, you eat, you partake of promises. Do you know in, in a, in, in Christian practice, you know, at our church, we do this once a month. You partake of a very special bread and a very special wine. And you know what, what you're partaking in? You're saying that you're taking in Christ. His body, his blood, his death, his resurrection. And every month when you, 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 you partake, you're eating it. And that eating is symbolic that all that is in Christ, all of his maximally magnificent promises, you're saying, I want this in me. That's what you're saying. And when you do this, it's not just a piece of religion. You're saying, when I do this, this is my life. These are my promises. This is my destiny. And I partake, so I'll be most 
part, I'll be most human. This is what it's about. And then there's this last portion I want to emphasize. Through this, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So a lot of people think sin is like doing something bad. But let me tell you, sin is far worse than doing something bad. Sin starts at your desire. It starts with what you want. So what you want really is something more than God. What you want is something more than his promises. What you want is a humanity that's not filled with the divine nature offered to us by grace through Jesus Christ. That's, and you know, that's how we're born. We're born wanting all kinds of good things. You know, some of you want fame. Some of you want money. I mean, do you wake up and you're like, yeah, man, I just want to find the ugliest, meanest, most horrible woman in the room and marry her. No, of course not. You want to find all that is good, but mostly what we want is that, and we consider that good above whatever God is offering us. Now, I want to take you through, um, when I read through this, I want to take you through a kind of lengthy quote, and please follow me. Follow the quote. I mean, you can see it on that screen there up here. I'm going to take you through a quote, and it's saying something more or less the same and this is from one of my favorite thinkers. This is C.S. Lewis. And this is from a sermon that he actually gave called The Weight of Glory. And I read this in my early 20s. And it changed my life. And it made me think that all the things I wanted in life were pretty sad. <laughs> it's a reference to this. This, that we, how can you escape from the corruptions of your heart because of all your sinful desires. So I want to give you some piece of wisdom here from C.S. Lewis. So let's just follow me as, we, as I go through. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's worth taking in. Okay? So here it goes. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. So I don't think anyone would say that today, but this is like, you know, early 20th century, okay? So he's, he's writing about today's early 20th century. But if you had asked any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. What's the greatest virtue? There's a love. Some of you would go like, mm, okay, okay. It goes on. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this of is of more than philological importance. You're like, what does philological? I looked it up because I didn't know what it meant either. It means of the history and structure of language. So this isn't some nerdy thing about language. Something really important has happened here when people think the highest virtue is unselfishness instead of saying love. Okay, that's what he's saying. Let's continue. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. In other words, if you're going to be a good person, you should be self-depriving yourself. That's what he's saying. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. So that's what he goes on to think. And I just want to say a little something about this before I go on. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to know what this feels like. <laughs> and maybe some of you have this kind of impression too. I think of like my cousins or I think of, um, you know, my aunt who doesn't believe in Jesus. Although she grew up in this rather intensely Christian family. Um, and she grew up in this kind of Christian, you know, ethos, this culture. And constantly... Um, this fixation is deprive yourself, be more unselfish, and, you know, that's, that's what you're supposed to be doing. Like, if you are, if you have less of good things in your life, then you, you're getting holier. How do you know it's the will of God? Because it's unpleasant, right? And I don't know about you, but the version of kind of like Korean Christianity that I grew up in, it's steeped in this kind of thinking. And, um, and, 
my aunt, my cousins, they hate this. And when I grew up, I always thought, it feels like the people out there are having fun. <laughs> what does it basically mean to be a Christian? It means to not have fun, all right? It means to be religious, which basically means deprive yourself of good things, joyful things in life. Don't listen to rock and roll. Don't watch that movie because they might have a swear word or two in it. You know, like don't dance too much. Don't drink that alcohol because, you know, of course, if you drink three or four, you know, you're, off, you're definitely going to be a drunk, right? You know, it's like this kind of attitude. And of course, always be unselfish. This is what he's talking about, right? He goes on. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Let me say that again. Not about self-denial as if it's like that's the main goal. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ and here's the important part. And to nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Let me just say it this way. Um, when I was growing up, I was very interested in religious questions. And then I was like, you know, we're not the only religion out there. Maybe the, some of the others like, have some really good point too. And I learned about Buddhism. And let me give you the central core inside of Buddhism. The central core inside of Buddhism is that life is suffering. That's the central core insight. And life is suffering, and they have an antidote. They said, we, we know why. Because of desire. Everybody always wants, wants, wants. You can't ever get to peace in life until you get rid of the desires. So you have to kind of like become a monk and like empty yourself of all desires you know, desire of be, being good looking, the desire of more food, the desire of riches, desires of even like, you know, deep companionship of love, all of it. Then you can get to final oneness with the universe and peace. That's the fundamental vision of Buddhism. Let me tell you something. When I first learned this when I was about 14 years, I, I learned this in high school, by the way. <laughs> Uh, my ninth grade world history teacher had a master's in Asian studies, and she taught this. And I was like, that's what Buddhism is. And, you know, and then later on, I read it some more to just make sure she wasn't, she, she knew what she was talking about. She was right. And you know what my reaction was back then? It's still my reaction today. That's nonsense. <laughs> to rid yourself of all desires is not going to get you to the deepest peace. It's just to make yourself less human, I think. You know what makes us human? Our desires. But what the Bible says is that the desires are sinful. It's corrupt. It's messed up. The wrong things have become higher. The lower things have become higher, and the higher things we've pushed down or gotten rid of. That's what the Bible is saying. And so, let me finish the quote. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward... And the staggering nature of the rewards promise. Because that's what's in the Bible. Staggering nature of rewards. Maximally magnificent promises. That's the verse we're looking at, right? In the Gospels, the Gospels here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You ever think about that? There are so many people out there who think, I'm not going to believe in this Jesus stuff. Because my desires are too strong. And I would say, C.S. Lewis, one of these really wise Christians would say, no, that's, no it's because your desires are too weak. Jesus thinks your desires, the reason you're out there in the world and not following Jesus is because your desires are too pathetic. Interesting. So let me go on. Here's how he puts it. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Infinite joy. <clears throat> we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies. <laughs> Here we go. In a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer 
of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know, when my kids were little, we lived in uh, greater Philadelphia, and it takes like, like about an hour and a half to get to the beach. And so I love the beach. So we took our kids to, um, uh, you know, Ocean City, New Jersey. Is that what it's called? I think that's what it's called. And um, it's one of the lamest beaches I've ever been to, all right? I was like, this is the beach in the Atlantic East Coast, but it's so popular. And you know what? My kids loved it. <laughs> they sit there hours and hours and hours, and it was like, it was like a little piece of heaven for them. It's crazy. And if you've never been to, the, I was like, this is one of the lamest beaches I've ever been to, but it's so awesome for the kids. You know what C.S. Lewis is saying? If you don't know what Jesus is offering you and living according to the promises, you're taking in the promises, you're living like animal. You're living in ignorance. And whatever you're building your life on, because this is, I want to apply this particular question to the issue of identity. Whatever identity you're building your life on, it's like you're, you are building a mud pie in the slums. That's what he's saying. Now, I just want to hit, I just wanted to say this very briefly, right? Three identities that are mud pie identities. These are like probably three of the biggest ones in our culture today. Everybody in our society thinks this is the exciting, this is the way we should live life. They're picking one of these three, or sometimes there's a couple others, but these are like three of the most popular. They're picking one of these three, and they think the stuff that's happening in the church is boring. And I have to admit, uh, if you go to a church and they don't tell you about the gospel, in, in contrast to the mud pie identities, they kind of talk about Jesus in this very kind of traditionalistic way, you know, be, be good and you know, Jesus is nice, or something like this, um, that is boring. There's a lot of churches out there that are presenting a traditionalistic version of Christianity, and they're not showing you that what the gospel is offering is infinitely better. But let me offer, let me just tell you what the three are, and I'm not that smart. I got this from, you know, like one of the smartest pastors there is. There's, this is Tim Keller, okay? I was watching this video this week, and um, he was talking about, you know, how things are changing in COVID. And I can show you that with you that video, but this is the part of the video that I thought was incredible. It's like he just says it in passing that. And as soon as he said it, I was like, okay, I'm going to say that in my sermon, right? So number one, the first one, he calls it the therapeutic identity. What's the therapeutic identity? It's the one you pick up from your own feelings, you have this feeling, you're like, I know what is important to me. I have my own desires, whatever my own desires. Nobody else has the right to tell me how to like build my own identity. That's the one I usually are talking about. So usually you're building it on your career or like I'm going to find like true love, something like this or some combination of the above. That's one, the most common one, therapeutic identity. Right? And you certainly don't need God or Jesus for it because it's all on you. <laughs> And, and, as I, and if you've been in my church, you, you'll have heard me say this. It sounds great when it's all on you because nobody else can tell you what to do. But let me tell you, it's a serious trap. Because when it's all on you, you better come through. You are your own Lord. You are your own Savior. And when you fail, you as Lord will tell you you're a bum and you stink. That's identity that's therapeutic identity. And if you choose that, you're all on your own. Being on your own by yourself, it's a really bad way to go, right? So let me give you the second one. This is interesting. He says, the other one is the minority identity. So it's, this is really, this is the one that's kind of arising. It's arising in your companies and schools. It's that you know, people go like, well, I'm not white and I'm, a man, I'm not a white male Christian. I have, a, I have a special oppressed minority. I'm a minority. And so recently, um, you know, this wicked thing happened where this guy shot a bunch of Asians. And some people that I knew who were white called me up and said, you know, Susan, I'm really, really sorry. You know, they, they, they felt that I would feel really, really hurt by all that. 
And it was really interesting because I said to them, I'm actually okay. <laughs> of course, it's a terrible thing, but being Asian is not my identity. <laughs> it's like, sorry, Asia is a continent, and I'm Korean, and I'm American, but I don't really care <laughs> that I'm from Asia. It's not interesting. <laughs> it's like saying I care about I'm from, you know, like Europe. Like, I don't know anybody who sees themselves as a European-American. They're French, or they're Italian, or they're Irish. Well, sorry, I'm Korean, but I'm not Asian. And I said, it's not really that interesting to me. I care about them as my neighbors, but I'm not filled with this oppression narrative going on in our culture. And so that's a second one that people are, are picking up. And I want to pr propose to you, it's just not big enough. It's not complex enough. If you are reduced to a race or a continent, I'm sorry, I'm far more complicated than the fact that I came from Asia. And there's a lot more going on inside of me that God is going to do in me to turn me to use with his, you know, his divine nature. And there's a lot more beautiful things that are happening to me. And like the fact that I'm from this continent or that I've got a certain physical features, that's really pretty, actually, I think, kind of boring. So I would say that too is a mud pie identity. And it's in our politics. You notice it's very politicized. It's essentially a kind of secular religious identity. When you're talking about identity, you're talking about religion. And it's a kind of politicized religious identity. And then there's this one, Tim Keller, so he, and he mentioned one more, and he said this is the new one. It's really interesting. It isn't a new one. It's kind of an old one, but it really didn't have any traction until more recently. So it's kind of like it was around, and then it kind of died out, and now it's kind of back. And here he talks about Christian nationalism. So there's a set of folks that tend to be white, and they're like, well, we don't want Muslims coming to our country. And they're like corrupting our American culture. And like, you know, America was built on Judeo-Christian traditions. All of those things are true. All of those things are fact. And even a lot of those things are good. But it can't be your identity. <laughs> can't be your identity. All right? And so here he's like, it's actually, it's again, it's a politicized secular identity, except it's on the political right. So, you know, you have the, the oppressed minority. That's like the secular identity on the political left. And then, you know, out here, that's kind of the one that's out here because, you know, this is a much more politically left city. But you go to certain other parts of the country, this is kind of arising, the Christian nationalism identity. And here's like saying, no, that's, that's not built on the gospel either. And one of the things I would just want to say, what I want, I want to teach in this to you is, you you go throughout your life, there's all kinds of stuff hitting us from our culture. There's preaching and teaching and they're offering promises all the time. And I want to ask you, you need to be suspicious of those promises and the righteousness that's offered and of, and of your identities. And if you are joining us here today and you um, did not grow up in the church and you're thinking like, well, isn't that just this religion stuff? I know how to figure out my life. I want to ask you, do you? Which one are you like doing? So maybe you're doing the therapeutic, like I'm going to like get the you know, perfect wife or perfect husband and perfect kids and, and you know, like, you know, I'm going to build my identity on my career or something like that. But then now in your company, they're saying, hey, there's a certain righteous way of like handling all oppressed minorities. And like now a new identity is being pressured upon you. Do you really know how to, how to navigate through that? And maybe all these aren't so good. And I would say, this is like a mud pie. If we're still living this, we're like in the slums and we're building mud pies, except the mud pie you're building is you. <laughs> the mud pie you're building is yourself. It's your own life. It's your own identity. And it's fragile, right? Okay. So that was a lot. That's why there was only two parts. <laughs> okay. Let's go to part two. Um, part two, the adventure of pursuing the glory of holiness. You know, I, I, I grew up in the church, and, um, and I, I did not come, it was not easy for me to come to a really 
like establish faith in Jesus. But when C- I read these words from C.S. Lewis, it was the first time a wise Christian basically punched me in the head with his words. He was like saying, if all you want is money, if all you want is like, you're, you know, like at that time I was going like, I'm going to do a master's degree and then I'm going to do a PhD and I'm going to become this genius guy that shows up and I'm going to be this celebrated academic and I'm going to make good money and et cetera, et cetera, right? And um, except then I read C.S. Lewis and it was like he punched me in the head and just said, you're just, just building a mud pie, man. What Jesus is offering you is so much more. So much more. Now what I want to do for the close of this message is I want to give you an example. You know, some of you think that sounds really good. In some ways there's these promises and they're kind of like um, abstract things that you kind of have to take into your head and it feels like something kind of wispy but really if you will live and partake You live inside of the promises and you partake of the divine nature by walking inside the promises and then doing all these things. You add, you know, to this, you add virtues. You start like pursuing steadfastness. You start doing all these things that the latter portion of that passage talks about. You know, well, let me me just read it. Like, like it says, it seems like a lot of work. Well, it it is. Make every effort to supplement your faith with, with virtue, with knowledge, Self-control, steadfastness, godliness. You're like, man, it sounds tiring. (laughs) Well, let me just say this. Everything that's glorious in life, you don't just, it doesn't just come to you. (laughs) Everything that's glorious in life, if you're going to build yourself and you're going to experience glory, you get up to go chase it. It's, it's, It's this, the glory starts to shape you when you start to form yourself to it. You know, my kids go live in the, they go to the Cupertino high schools and every kid there, like, well, I shouldn't say every, but a lot of the kids there, they all want to go to like UC Berkeley or like MIT or something like this, right? And boy, they don't just go, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to get into a good college. Then they supplement (laughs) with after school activities. They supplement by coding camp. They supplement by, they're going to kill the SAT, et cetera, et cetera, Right? Some of them have like crazy resumes. They're like, I'm going to do all this and then I'm going to like start a company and then, you know, of course, well, Stanford will think I'm amazing. Well, I'm not calling you to exhaustion, but everybody knows that something glorious is worth chasing. And in this life, we tend to think, this Jesus stuff, is that an adventure? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And so, will you begin, I want to ask you, that if you will unite your life to the death and resurrection of Jesus and partake in his divine nature by faith, will you pursue an adventure? I want to close by giving you an example of one man's adventure, right? And um, it it isn't a hundred years ago. It isn't like a thousand years ago. Um, This man died in 2012. He's a very late 20th century man. And in my generation, he was famous. But a lot of you younger guys probably don't know who he is, okay? And I just want to tell you a little something about his story. Because this guy didn't just say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. And then I just want a nice house in the suburbs. And, you know, and then, like, let's try to just keep Jesus manageable down there, you know, in my religion. No. He decided he wants to live the great adventure. He was going to take in the great promises and live inside this glorious resurrection of Jesus. So the person I'm talking about is uh, Chuck Colson. Let me give you a little, tell you a little about Chuck Colson for those of you who don't know about him. So um, Chuck Colson um, was, uh, he grew up upper class in Boston. Right, and um, you know, I think he went to church as a young man. He went to an Episcopal church, but he never heard the gospel. It was just like religion. It's like it's just like a religious club that you join. It helps get you advantages in life. Right? Never had any real relationship to Jesus, or 
Who knows if we even believe in God? Um, so I don't know if he would have said he was secular, but basically he was. Just an earlier version of a lot of you, or a lot of people in our city. Um, he worked hard, went to an Ivy League college, went to Brown, and they ended up going to law school. He went to a very good law school, not the top, top, but he went to George Washington Law School, which is in Washington, D.C. And there are a bunch of, I, I did a little reading on there are things I didn't know. He went to the Marines. He apparently was really talented. He, went to, he became a captain. He became assistant to the assistant secretary of the Navy. So even when he was in the Marines, he, he was rising up the ranks. This guy was a serious go-getter. And um, afterwards, he came out and he started you know, his own law firm. And then the law firm was connected. He's in Washington, D.C. He's connected to you know, like the upper echelons of the Republican Party. I mean, the, the law firm was named after him at Colson and Morin. So this guy's really successful. And in 1968, he joined, he joined the Nixon administration. So a president said, oh, man, you're, you're, you're one of the hot shots. So the president, so this guy who's going to become the president of the United States, he's not going to just, he now has the money. He now has all the status. Everywhere he's gone, he's risen in the ranks. He's risen up to, like, the Marines. He's risen up in the law firm, right? And now a president is tapping on the shoulder. So all this sounds like an exciting life, doesn't it? Well, those of you guys might have known a little something about history. Richard Nixon was not a great, <laughs> of all the presidents to work for, that's not, wasn't, well, of course, he did not know it at the time. That wasn't going to be a great choice. So, um, he ended up working for Richard Nixon, and this is the way the, um, certain newspapers described, described Chuck Colson. He said, Chuck Colson was Nixon's hard man, the evil genius of an evil administration. That's the way they described him, right? He once said, he was once quoted as saying that he would walk over his grandmother to serve the president. And... Uh, the people in the press, you know, because a lot of the people in the press, they hated Nixon. So then they turned that quote into, like, Colson would run over his grandmother to serve the president. Even before he got the job under Nixon, you know what was happening? He had the money. He had his own law firm. There's this, there's this really interesting story. He wrote this uh, memoir called uh, Born Again. You can go check it out. He wrote this memoir called Born Again, and I was reading a little portion out of it last night, just to review for you. And he had, um, he had just gotten this deal, and he got this client, and it was a six-figure client. And okay, today you would say six-figure doesn't sound that interesting, but back then six figures was like a serious lot of money. This is in the mid-'70s. And normally... You get this client, you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you're going to be like, yes, we're rocking it. And you know what his reaction was? Ah, yeah. He'd walk into work, and they're talking about the next million-dollar client, and he's just like, bored. He had the money. He had the job. His, his, his uh, circle's are among the most powerful people in the, in the world, quite frankly. And inside, something was just empty. And so he went to this lunch meeting with one of his friends. And his friend was also a business, uh, a business associate. And this guy was the CEO of Raytheon. Do you guys know what Raytheon is? It's a, it's a defense contractor. They, they build like all our missiles and stuff like this. So in other words, this guy's a really powerful man. And he's hung out with him many times before, but when he walked in, like somebody like kind of warned him, it's like something weird has happened to him. So his, name, his name is, let me get this right, his name is Tom Phillips. Something's weird has happened to Tom. He kind of like found Jesus or something. So he walked in this guy's office, and Tom talked to him in a way that he had never seen before. He had like this confidence and this peace. He goes, wait a second, I heard this, you've been to this, Something religious has happened to you. And he said, yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I've given my life to Jesus. 
And when Chuck Colson heard that, he was like, what the heck? He's like, it was like, it was shocking. It was like completely stupid. But then a couple years later, he was going to prison. And when he got sent to prison, under whatever the heck he did, he like, he pled guilty. I don't exactly, I don't know all the details. He ended up going to prison for a certain number of months. And um, he was afraid of things like, I hear in prison you could get raped by other men. I mean, he was, he was terrified. And before he went into prison, Tom Phillips visited him and handed him a book by C.S. Lewis. Not this book, but a very famous book called Mere Christianity. When you're in prison, you have a lot to think about. A lot of how you built your life. And reading that book, I just say, just, this is really this great part. He started thinking about the resurrection. And what he saw is that here he is, he's like, I went to Ivy League College. All these men around me are powerful, super disciplined. And now we have this conspiracy to protect the president. And what he saw was that when all the press and all the pressure came down, every single dude chickened out. <laughs> and he ended up in prison. And when he saw, he'd read the Bible, and he would say, all these guys, all they have to do is deny Jesus and they don't die. None of them chickened out. And he said, this probably really happened. And he gave his life to Jesus. <laughs> so that's just the beginning. So let me tell you a little something about the next half. I mean, Chuck Colson, before this, he was rich. He divorced his first wife, three kids, etc. right? You're kind of your typical kind of like upper class, secular, successful life. But here's the second half of his life. Here's what he's, just some details from the second half of his life. Um, he remembered that he's like, when Tom Phillips is like saying, how could you be interested in Jesus? Like you make like a quarter million dollars a year. You're like one of the most powerful men in the world. And by the way, I looked it up. Quarter million dollars in 1974 is like $1.3 million today. That's like not how much you make one time. That's how much he makes every year. It's like salary, okay? He's like saying, how could you be interested in Jesus? But after he gave his life to Jesus, you know what he found? He started thinking like, I've been in prison. He started getting really interested in like what life was like in prison. He started seeing a lot of the injustices. He started seeing a lot of the horrible things that happened in prison. You know, he started, he started this ministry called Prison Fellowship. To the men and women, and most of them are men, that the world despises and nobody cares about and have been thrown away, he realized they too can be given maximally magnificent promises in Jesus. And he started one of the most important ministries. It's still going on. It's become international. He went on to write like 30 different books. He had radio commentary that people all around the world would listen to. Right? There's, a, there's a radio commentary called Breakpoint today that you can listen to. The guy who gives it is a guy that he discipled, right? And I, I still like listening to Breakpoint. And this guy was basically discipled by Chuck Colson. And um, he wrote 30 books. He has been given honorary degrees. He's transformed and touched literally millions and millions of lives. And you know what? That's just... The stuff that the world says is important. But I think if you had ever asked Chuck Colson what he thought was important, he's walked into prisons. He's met men who have murdered others, who have like, you know, been leaders of gangs, violent, horrible things in their life. And when he's met them, he said, you're not really that different than me. He's become friends with them. He's watched our lives transform through prison fellowship and by the gospel being offered to them. He would have said, that's some of the greatest stuff that he's experienced. That's an adventure. <laughs> now let me ask you this question. I don't know if you're going to live a life like Chuck Colson, but I bet you there's somebody who's listening to this message today. <laughs> there's a lot of talented people who live in this city. 
And I hope there's somebody listening to this message today and I want to shake and punch you in the head with, with C.S. Lewis in 2 Peter chapter 1. You want to build a mud pie or you want to live an adventure? Maybe your adventure won't be quite as like grand as Chuck Colson or like you won't be as famous, but it will be no less glorious. Some of the greatest adventures in Christ are never going to be famous, but they're no less unbelievably magnificent on the other side of that cross. So today, brothers and sisters, all you who are listening to me, I dare you, choose the adventure. Choose the adventure on the other side of the cross through magnificent promises through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is not a theory. It's not some wishful thinking. Chuck Colson's a real person. And the things that he led and influenced that you enabled him to do, there's no way one man could have done what he did. You were with him. And boy, did you do incredible things through him. Just the seemingly simple, what used to be a, what many people consider a very despicable man. A very, very corrupt, rich man. Lived a life filled partaking of the divine nature of Christ. And this is what it could look like. And I pray that you would put this seed into our hearts. If there's anybody listening here today, especially if they're young, and they've always thought this Jesus stuff was boring, this church stuff was boring, this gospel stuff is boring, I pray that you would shatter that by the power of your Spirit by the story of Chuck Colson, by the incredible promise of your gospel. And even if they forget, or even if they want to run away, that there are some people today, today they would never forget what was said today. And your spirit would shake them. And like you did to me many, many years ago when I'm reading C.S. Lewis, you would punch and dislodge all these weak, sad, mud pie identities that we're trying to build and offer us something far more glorious and amazing. And help us chase after that, Lord. See how worthy that is of our lives, because it's from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.